0: I'm really happy to be up here with you, you know, it's, uh, it's the first time I've preached in over a year and a half. Since then, we've had our, uh, our beautiful little boy shepherd, me and my wife, and it's been a great blessing, and we have been completely decimated. <laughs> God has really transitioned our lives and transitioned our hearts, and so uh, for the first time, I think, ever preaching, I'm a little nervous today, I'll be very real with you, but... I'm just so grateful for God's Word and so grateful to be in the Word of God together. It's powerful and it it transitions our hearts towards righteousness, right? And so that's so important. Today, we're going to be preaching through self-control. We're jumping into the Proverbs. Our main texts are going to be Proverbs 16.32 and Proverbs 25.28. And it's going to be a little different than the Proverbs last summer. When Gibson started the Proverbs last summer, we took a series through chapters 1 through 9. And Proverbs 1 through 9 are a little different than 10 through 31, right? Proverbs 1 through 9, if you remember, envision wisdom, right? They give us this beautiful depiction of wisdom, the most vibrant, most desirable being that anyone could ever have a relationship with. Through wisdom, all righteousness is seen and all righteousness is received. Wisdom was there in the beginning and all things were created through wisdom. It's Proverbs chapter 8. And now, as we continue to see wisdom at work, wisdom, a true reflection of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, a foreshadowing of Jesus, we get to move into kind of these wise, pithy sayings, right? Like these little, you know, hatred stirs up. Strife, but love covers all offenses, right? These little actual true Proverbs in Proverbs 10 through 31. So that's the quickest recap you can get on that, but that's kind of where we're transitioning to this summer. We're gonna be teaching through topically in the Proverbs. So before I begin, this is gonna be on self-control. It's Proverbs sixteen thirty-two and Proverbs 25, 28. We're gonna open those up, I'm gonna pray, and then I'm gonna define self-control, all right? Heavenly Father, you are good and you are a merciful God. And it is by your grace that we can actively have a role in the church and in goodness and have lives that are completely fulfilled in righteousness and that we may act in self-control. I pray as we read your word, it transitions our hearts towards righteousness and that we will be burdened to live godly lives for your namesake. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray, amen. So before we begin, I just want to define self-control. Like I was that spastic kid who sat in class who was pretty well-behaved. I was like, I think everybody kind of knows that little ADD kid. I don't think that's what self-control is speaking to, right? Self-control speaks to a character of the heart. And the passage that we're going to talk about and the passages we're going to talk on Really talk about a transition of character on a spiritual level, a deep inner recess of our being that needs to be controlled. So as long as we're on the same page here, we should have a pretty good understanding of self-control. right? So I'm going to define it here. Self-control is this. Self-control is the ability to control oneself and act righteously when faced with a choice, opposition, or adversity. Right, A self-controlled person will act with righteous and correct character when faced with a choice, opposition, or adversity. It's a pretty general understanding, but I think we could all look at that and say, yeah, that makes sense, right? An example of somebody who is self-controlled, who walked in righteousness, is someone like Joseph. You know, the guy with the jacket with many colors. Joseph in Genesis 31, 30, uh, 37, to 38 is constantly, constantly having people hemmed him, right? He has Potiphar's wife thrown herself at him, and Potiphar's wife was probably, she was, uh, yeah, you like that? Potiphar's wife <laughs> was probably really attractive, and, and Joseph was just a young man. But in righteousness, with self control, with a spirit yielded to Christ, or, and he didn't even know it was Christ, but a spirit yielded to godliness, he turned away from sin, right? In opposition, in contrast to that, if you want somebody who does not exhibit self-control in scriptures, you would use somebody like Samson, who, though the Lord used Samson, gave into almost every lust and passion and worldly desire that he could have had, right? So that's just a general understanding of self-control, right? A righteous, spirit-ruled life is self-controlled, and in opposition to that, is a worldly, flesh-ruled life, driven by passions. Cool? So let's begin. Proverbs sixteen thirty-two: Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who takes the city. It's a beefy passage. I'm just joking, it's really small. When we look at this, I'm reminded of Gibbs' first sermon in Proverbs 1 where he said this, every single person wants wisdom Every single person wants wisdom. Wisdom is a universal trait, and everybody finds it desirable, right? Nobody's sitting there like, I don't want wisdom. I found this while studying very similar with self-control, a quality that comes from a life with wisdom. It's a valuable asset, and most people are like, yeah, I like self-control. That's a good thing, right? And Solomon recognizes that here, but this passage really points to an emphasis on how valuable self-control is, right? It says, whoever is slow to anger, and he who rules his spirit is better than the mighty, and he then takes a city better than the conqueror, better than the mighty is the man who has control over his spirit. that the deep recesses of his his heart are controlled in righteousness, as opposed to given over to his worldly desires and fleshliness. See, even worldly people will say, yeah, self-control is good but we don't take it with the amount of value that we need to take it, right? And Solomon recognizes that. We all like our heroes. We all like the mighty people. It's even relevant in our culture. We watch Marvel movies. Who here's watched a Marvel movie? Yeah, probably most hands go up. And we, we go to the theaters and they dim the lights and you got these action heroes coming out and they're super cool. You got Thor, you got Iron Man, and you got these mighty heroes of justice beating up the big bad. And then the remaining 50% of the movie, they're bickering and squabbling with each other. They're mighty heroes. And even in our culture, we still exemplify this desire to look to might on an earthly level, instead of looking to godly character as the highest level of being. Solomon wants us to recognize the value of self-control. So before we go any deeper, we need to recognize the value of self-control. G. Campbell Morgan said this, this is a proverb that is constantly quoted and very little believed. If men only recognize that there is more valor and heroism in self-control than in doughty deeds, which others acclaim in song and story, how different would our world be now? How different would things be if everyone truly took the wisdom of Solomon, truly emphasized self-right, or excuse me, self-control in their lives? We would walk in righteousness, right? We would have more churches with pastors still in the pews who didn't fall into sin. We would have politicians that people trusted and and believed in, right? Because we knew that they would walk in self-control. We would have more families together. Self-control is valuable, right self control is a quality that we need so what happens if we don't have self control and this takes us to the second part take a few t- pages over to proverbs 25 25 28 my bible is so conveniently located that all of these passages are like right on the cusp of the pages so I get confused when I turn what happens when a person does not abide in self-control, does not have self-control in their life? Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-eight says this, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. I like it in the NASB translation. It's a very literal translation. You'll see that there's a phonetic kind of tie-in to the last passage. It says this, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. Once again, it refers to the spirit, to a deep point of a person. You need to control your spirit. And if you don't, you're like a city left without walls. Back in the day, cities had walls. Nobody gets into our cities because we have 476. I'm just joking. (laughs) But they had walls. They had walls, and and that would keep out the pilferers, that would keep out the bears, the lions, the robbers, the thieves. You could control and protect yourself. And so what Proverbs 25, 28 says, all right? we recognize this is valuable, but if you don't have it, you're exposed. If you do not walk in self-control, you live an exposed life, and you don't live an exposed life to an external force. You live an exposed life to your own sin and your own spirit, right? A man without A city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. You're at risk of being detrimented by your own character. Charles Bridges, a super, super, super old theologian said this, certainly the noblest conquests are gained or lost over ourselves. The first outbreak of anger resulted in murder and a king's lack of watchfulness about lust resulted in adultery. So we're gonna follow some of his examples. I'm gonna turn to Genesis 4. You can turn with me if you want, or you can put it in your notes. You can listen to me read it, that's fine. It's the story of Cain and Abel. Spoiler alert, as I turn, Cain killed Abel. (sighs) Got it. You had 6,000 years minimum to hear that story, so I spoiled it for you. Gotcha. We read this. Now Adam knew Eve. His wife. And when she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry right? Very reminiscent of Proverbs 16, 32. Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? And here's where we want to kind of hinge a portion of our discussion right here. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, and he killed him. Cain did not exercise control over his spirit. Cain sinned. The first point when we do not exercise self-control is that we are exceptionally vulnerable to our own sin. We're vulnerable right? And sin is waiting. Sin's right there, ready to go at any time. The Lord says this, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. If you do not live in self-control, the Lord gives Cain a warning. If you do not live in self-control, sin is there, and sin will affect your life, and it will tear into your heart. Second point off this, and I, I can't I can't not say this is sometimes I think that when we do not practice self-control, that when we walk in sin, when we walk in worldliness and our own pleasures and our own passions, we think that it only affects ourselves, right? How often does the thought of looking at something seem so harmless? How often overindulging in something seems so little? Sin does not simply affect you, your anger affects your family Your laziness affects your position in your job. A transition of heart needs to take place or sin will continue to affect every single aspect of your relationships, right? If we don't have self-control, we're exposed to sin and sin will affect others. The second example is 2 Samuel 11. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to summarize it. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. It's It's a good one. Put it in your notes, 2 Samuel 11, it's long, and I think it might be a little too much to read the whole thing, but essentially David doesn't go to war with his men. He stays home and he's sitting in his palace and he looks out his window and he sees a sweet young thing, and she is beautiful, and he lusts and his heart goes out. And then in that lust, he has her brought to him. And then in that, he commits adultery and then she gets pregnant. He doesn't practice self-control. He brings her to him. And in that pregnancy, then, instead of bringing it to righteousness, he tries to lie and hide it, right? And in that lying and in that hiding, he ends up killing her husband right? He tries to bring Uriah to come back, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and he tries to bring him to lay with her and she won't. And then he tries to get him drunk and get him to lay with her and she won't because he's a righteous man, because he wants to hold his post and his position. And then at the end of the day, he puts him on the front line, has all his men step back and he puts him to death. If we do not have self-control, and we use this as example, right? These passages have a lot more theological depth than this but if we do not have self-control, our sin will hurt us. It will affect others. And what we see in the example of David is that sin will keep manifesting itself in different ways, right? If we don't have self-control, if we don't have control over our hearts, if we don't walk in righteousness, sin will keep manifesting and changing and changing and changing. And it doesn't just stop. It has a continual effect on our life. Lust leads to adultery. Adultery leads to lying. Lying leads to murder. Sin continually grapples at your heart. One thing leads to another, right? And thirdly, I just want to touch on this point of sin. This is a personal story. When I was like 23, 24 years old, I was super fired up for Christ, and God had had brought me back to Him. He had. Transitioned my heart, he had transitioned my life into righteousness. But with that came a little bit of comfort and that came a little bit of pride. (laughs) And so me and my wife, girlfriend at the time, were invited out with some friends from high school, people who were definitely not walking with the Lord. And I was like, oh yeah, this is my chance, my chance, I'm gonna gonna lead these guys back to Christ, I'm gonna be a good witness here. And the exact opposite happened, we went out and they got me uh, hammered. (laughs) <laughs> just completely trash in a way that I'd never even been. I accepted sin. I accepted immorality. I, I laughed at crudeness. I, I might have gone back five years of my faith. It was just an embarrassment. I thought that I had self-control, and what it really revealed was my character was not right. I wasn't walking in righteousness. Sin affects you. It affects those around you. It continues to grapple in your heart. And if you are a Christian, and if you walk in sin, it will cause you to, bolt, to to bear false witness to God, right? Sin hurts, and it weighs heavily on our lives, and it will cause us to bear false witness to God. And this is a point that I, I really struggle with in my life, and I always stand firm on. You are better to offend the unrighteous In their sin than to offend your God in your own sin. We want to walk in self-control and we want to reflect well upon our God, but the most important thing is a right relationship with God for a believer, right? Self-control allows you to do that. Self-control allows you to walk in righteousness and if you don't have it, you are exposed like a man without walls. And this is kind of a sad, sad story. (laughs) You say, all right, Pat, where do we go from here, right? We get it. We need self-control. We need to walk in righteousness. Where's the change happen? Give us the prescription doc. If you would, with me, turn to Titus chapter two. Titus chapter two. Titus chapter two, Paul is writing to Titus. I'm gonna do this nice brief little exegesis. Paul's writing to Titus and he's, he's basically giving him this beautiful depiction of what righteous living looks like, right? And in verses one through 10, it's teach good doctrine. You know, he's giving instruction for older men, younger men, younger women, older women, godly living for the churches that Titus is overseeing and how to transition lives into godliness, righteousness. And it kind of comes to this crescendo in verse 11. And it says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for a blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. When I started this sermon, and it has had a lot trimmed out, my whole thought and process and argument was that we were going to need these spiritual disciplines in our lives, that we were going to need all these Proverbs and wisdoms to gather together to have right living, to have this beautiful self control and righteous perspective on life. But what I found was that the more I studied, the more I realized if you want to live a self controlled life, if you want rightness with God and you want to walk in righteousness, there is but one place to go. And that's the grace of God. It's all the grace of God, man. I think back to when I was seeking, and I realized there are all these different religions and they all have different prescriptions and ideologies and disciplines, and you can beat a habit, you can beat an addiction, you can beat something, but you will still effectually be ruled by lawlessness, ungodliness, and worldly passions, because until your heart is transitioned in grace, until grace effectively rules your heart, nothing changes. Right, we're just bound to sin. Charles Spurgeon says this, and Titus too. Wherever the grace of God comes effectually, it makes the loose liver deny the desires of the flesh. It causes the man who lusted after gold to conquer his greediness. It brings the proud man away from his ambitions. It trains the idler to diligence. It sobers the wanton mind, which cared only for the frivolities of life. Not only do we leave these lusts, but we deny them. If we want self-control, we must have an active relationship with the grace of Jesus Christ. And the language here, if you look at it, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. This isn't a one-time thing. Sometimes people think, okay, I've accepted the grace of God. I'm saved, I'm good. This is an active and right relationship. The language here in the Greek almost, it almost reflects it like a mother disciplining her child. A right relationship with the grace of God is what transitions man's heart to self-control and lawfulness so that we may be made a people living godly lives in this present age. A people purified for Jesus, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. If we want to live in a self-controlled, righteous life, with our sin contained, we must turn to the grace of God. So where do we go, right? We know that we need self-control. We know that it's a quality that is super good and godly. We know that if we don't have self-control, we are exposed like a man without walls to our own flesh, to our own sin, and sin is waiting. But we know that this is all fully redeemed in Jesus, fully redeemed in grace. So hear me out. One, if you are not a Christian, uh, I see a lot of people I don't recognize today, which is cool. I like that our congregation has a lot of people today. If you are not a Christian, but you recognize the value of self-control. You, value, you recognize the value of godly living and you recognize the value of righteousness. I just want to make sure you know that unless you have a right relationship with the grace of God, it's not attainable. It is not attainable. You cannot change your heart. There are many disciplines in this world and many ideologies and you may beat nicotine or something, you may be a drug addiction, you may deal with your anger, but sin will continue to manifest in your life in different ways until you have a correct and right relationship with the grace of God, you will live in your sin and your worldly passions will rule you. Before the nonbeliever, there is hope. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Meaning this, grace, something freely given undeserved, is attainable if you've been in church your whole life, maybe your parents brought you, maybe you just don't believe in God, I don't know. Remember that the grace of God is there for you and that your heart can be transitioned into righteousness at any time with a correct relationship with grace. Second, and this is kind of a, I don't wanna sound judgy, but uh, if you're saved and you struggle with self-control, We're waving the flag here, right? If there is a sin in your life that controls you or a passion or worldliness that takes control of your heart, there's something wrong. There's just something wrong. And I don't mean to come across judgy because I've had sin in my life and we do not all practice self-control all the time. I recognize that grace covers up our sins. There's something wrong. And if you recognize that today, if you recognize, hey, my life doesn't reflect Christ. Something's not right in my life. But you can always come back to that same grace, that first love that transitioned your heart. It's always attainable. The grace of God is always there for the believer, and you can walk in it. I was reminded when I was just praying through this passage the other day. It's, it's like the first thing Jesus says in, in the Gospel of Mark. It's like Mark 1 14 or something. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance is simply doing a 180 and turning around. Christian, if you are walking in sin, if you are not living a controlled life, there is always the ability to turn right back to God and be made clean. And I got different things here and lots of things, but Ultimately, first 1 John 1, 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Come back to the God who saved you in grace. It's a beautiful, beautiful place to be. Which leads me to my last little point, and I know it's not a long sermon. Never lose sight of the grace of God. Listen, our God is a righteous redeemer. That is that is a quality of his character. That is who our God is when we don't walk in self-control, when we don't walk in righteousness, he's still there to redeem and his grace is universally available. Every single person I think I mentioned today, you got Joseph redeemed, you got David redeemed, you got Cain, even Cain was redeemed. He gave Cain a city and a family and a, and a legacy. There's a lot, of, a lot of cool things from that, but God redeems people and his grace is attainable when you mess up. Do not live in condemnation. You don't have to feel bad. You can be restored in the grace of God. So my my prayer is this for us today, that we recognize the grace that we fell in love with, that we look at right living, we look at self-control, and we make it attainable in our lives. We draw ourselves close to Jesus and the grace that he applied in our lives. Amen? We'll close it out and pray. Heavenly Father, maybe not a long sermon, but you bless the time and God, you are so powerful and so merciful and we praise you. I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the ability to walk in righteousness and I thank you for the ability to live in self-control. I pray that our congregation may walk in line with your spirit in all things that we do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.